everyone. Thanks so much for having me. So, I think most people got the paper, but thanks for doing a little experiment with me today. So, let me just pull this up. So I wanted to try to make this a little interactive. Um, so if everybody, if you haven't downloaded the app, but if you could go to live.voxvote.com and it doesn't work in here, I double checked and enter the pin. I would like to go to the first question so we can make sure that this works. I'll leave that up for a second. Is it showing up? Yep. Okay. All right. Um, so you can select your answer. So, so yes, this is an obesity talk, but they tell you just to make sure it works to pick some sort of fun questions. So here's my here's my attempt at humor. So I came to this talk today because I just know it's going to be informative and helpful to my practice. It's a good way to nap before rounds. Or I came for the free food. Weight isn't their food. So if people could vote. Oh, sorry. I have to start it. so many seconds, sorry, that seems long. people able to vote? Yeah. Okay, sorry. I don't know why it's taking so long. Let's see if I stop this if it works. There we go. Okay. Oh, and is it any wonder that everybody here does so well in school and with their teachers, right? All right. So let me get back to the regular talk. talk today about the prevalence, prevention, and possibly syndromic and update on obesity in childhood. So the objectives of this talk are to discuss the recent clinical practice recommendations on screening pediatric patients for obesity comorbidities, to talk a little bit about identifying those patients for whom genetic obesity syndromes or genetic mutations should be considered, and then to examine what preventative strategies have been shown to be effective in combating excessive weight gain in infants and children. <clears throat> So we're actually gonna to go to the next question. So sorry, let me toggle over here. 
So which of the following obesity filing statements about obesity prevalence is true? So obesity rates have declined in kids ages two to nine over the past five years. They've declined among two to five year olds. There's been a sharp increase seen in class one obesity among two to five year olds or the prevalence of obesity has remained stable in kids over the past five years. So if people don't mind voting now. here today. So 2% for obesity rates have declined, about 6% for they've declined among two to five year olds. 82% said there's been a sharp increase seen in class one obesity among two to five year olds, which is the correct answer and that the prevalence of obesity about 10% that it's remained stable in kids over the past five years. So let's talk a little bit more about that. So first of all, let's just make sure that we're all um, on board with the definition. So I think most people <clears throat> at this point probably feel pretty comfortable with definitions for overweight and obesity in kids, but just to review, these are the ones advocated by the CDC. So that looking at a BMI curve, a BMI greater than or equal to the 85th percentile identifies children um, who are overweight and then greater than or equal to the 95th percentile um, is the definition of obese. But then what about this area up here with the green, the green star? There's that whole no man's land out there. And so people have proposed really trying to classify that a little bit better and putting obesity into different classes. So class one, where you have sort of the standard definition of greater than or equal to the 95th percentile, but then class two obesity, people have proposed that that's when your BMI is greater than 120% of the 95th percentile for age and sex, or BMI greater than or equal to 35, whichever is lower. And then class three obesity, where your BMI is greater than or equal to 140% of the 95th percentile for age and sex, or BMI of greater than or equal to 40. And does it really matter that we do this? Um, and in fact, we think it does because when people have looked at this, those um, patients and individuals who have class two or class three obesity appear to be at greater cardiovascular and metabolic risk compared to those with kind of less severe degrees of obesity. So getting back to the question in terms of obesity prevalence. So this is a brief that came out last year through the National Center for Health Statistics out of the CDC, looking at trends in obesity prevalence among adults 20 and over, um, and also youth ages two to 19 years um, in the United States, um, initially starting with 1999 through 2000 um, and Haynes data, and then up through 2015 and 2016. And one of the reasons um, why I put in the first question is that several years ago, um, given all of the efforts and, and real push to sort of focus on obesity in childhood, we um, kind of had a brief celebratory moment where we thought that, that there were reports out that obesity rates had at least had stabilized and that there was even some suggestion in the literature that 
obesity rates had declined um, in the youngest age group, which is usually considered around um, kids ages two to five. But unfortunately, in light of the newer data that came out last year, we see that both for adults and as well as for youth, um, that if you look at the initial data from 1999 to 2000, and you look at the most recent data cycle, that unfortunately obesity prevalence has actually in, continued to increase in kids. And although it's not shown on this side, there's actually been a real sharp increase in class one obesity among kids ages two to five. Additionally, also not shown on this slide, is that there's rising prevalence with age, so um, higher prevalence in older kids and adolescents. And then there's also racial um, and ethnic um, differences, so that non-Hispanic black and Hispanic youth have higher prevalence rates than non-Hispanic white and non-Hispanic Asian. So at this point, about 18.5% of all youth two through 19 in the United States are obese, and this is not um, even looking at those who would be considered overweight. Um, and then another paper that was also published fairly recently by Dr. Ashley Skinner and her group from Duke, they published a lot um, looking at childhood obesity and prevalence. They took the same NHANES data um, and their findings agreed with the initial brief, but then they also looked at different obesity classes. So on the left here, you have the data for girls, and on the right, you have the data for boys. The top dark line is class one obesity. Um, this dotted line in the middle is class two, and then at the bottom, you have class three obesity. And you can see that from 1990 to 2000, up through the most recent cycle, 2015 to 2016, for both girls and boys, there's been a sharp increase um, in class one obesity. But then if you even look at um, class two and class three, while maybe a little bit less dramatic, there's still been um, continued increases. So clearly a lot more work to do. So what about the issue of infant obesity? So the truth is there really isn't an agreed upon definition for excess adiposity under the age of two, um, but it's certainly an important area to look at and to focus on. So right now, um, the AAP um, recommends using weight for length as the current anthropometric standard to really identify those who may be at risk for obesity. And in the clinical practice guidelines on pediatric obesity that were published last year through the Endocrine Society, their suggestion is that um, an infant or toddler may be considered obese if their sex-specific weight for length is greater than or equal to the 97th point seventh percentile um, for age. Oops, sorry. Um, the other thing, too, is that people have, have sort of questioned what's the best sort of tracking measure for this. And there is some newer data that BMI may show good correlation with weight for length. And so this could be a useful measure where you could still be calculating this for infants and kids under two. And it could be used to track weight status from birth through adulthood. Okay. So screening for comorbidities. So again, if people don't mind pulling out phones. So the next question, you are seeing a seven-year-old girl whose BMI is greater than the 97th percentile. She's had a significant increase in her BMI over the past several years. There's a strong family history of type 2 diabetes and cardiovascular disease. You suspect she has insulin resistance. The best blood test to measure for this possibility is a random insulin level, fasting insulin level, and hemoglobin A1C or none. You're basing this on clinical suspicion. So we'll give people a few seconds to vote. Thank <laughs> you. 
good? All right, so we'll stop this one. Okay, excellent. I like variability. So um, for the people not actively in the audience, so random insulin is 0%. Nobody guessed that. Very good. Fasting insulin, about 31%. Hemoglobin A1C, close to 60. And non-clinical suspicion, 9.5%. So congratulations to the 9.5% because that's the correct answer. And let's talk about why. So if there's one thing I really hope to impress to everybody today is that there is really no diagnostic value in obtaining fasting insulin levels. And let's talk about the reasons why, because it sounds really good in theory, right? So the problem is, is that when people have looked at this, there really is no well-defined cut point between normal and abnormal. There's really considerable overlap between youth who are insulin resistant and youth who are insulin sensitive. And when you add into the mix, that there is a normal physiologic insulin resistance at the time of puberty, it just complicates the picture even more. Add to that that many of these assays really lack standardization and that there's really poor reproducibility. And when people have looked at this, they've found that fasting insulin levels are very similar in youth who are obese with normal glucose tolerance and those who have impaired glucose tolerance. So really at this point, now it may change, but really at this point, insulin levels should really for the most part be done really only in the setting of being used as a research tool. And if that isn't enough to convince you, um, a lab that we send a lot of orders to, including I think a lot of people in the audience that's all over the state of Connecticut, I call them to find out. And in an era where we should be responsible about our healthcare dollars, a fasting insulin level is $98.01. So for a test that isn't going to really change anything you do with your management, um, it's probably not necessary. So, but who should be screened for obesity um, or potential obesity comorbidities? So really, we're talking about any child or adolescent with a BMI of greater than or equal to the 85th percentile for age and sex. And again, it's more than just about doing labs, right? We're gonna talk about the labs, but what kinds of things are important? So obviously getting a good family history, things that people in this audience do every day. So asking about a history of obesity, asking about bariatric surgery. Um, is there a history of type two diabetes in the family, gestational diabetes? Is there a history of dyslipidemia, hypertension, premature cardiovascular disease? Is there a history of PCOS? Asking about the child, um, their medical history. Is there any concern for polyuria, polydipsia? Is there habitual snoring or excess daytime sleepiness, um, joint pain or limp? Um, if it's appropriate, asking about menstrual pattern. And then certainly on physical exam, looking at what's their blood pressure? Is it normal for their age and sex? Is there presence or absence of acanthosis? And then again, if appropriate for a female um, teenager, is there any evidence or concern for hirsutism or acne? So look, thinking about the screening test um, that would be reasonable to do, um, one would be an A1C, but we're gonna talk about it a little bit with some caveats, a fasting plasma glucose, getting fasting lipids, um, looking at um, measures of liver function, so ALT and AST, but particularly ALT. And what I put in there in the parentheses is that there's been more of a push, I'm not a GI doctor obviously, but more of a push to make new normative standards. Um, and the clinical practice guidelines suggest 
um, and this may be something that, that we see change over time, is that really they should be considered abnormal if the ALT is greater than 25 units per liter in boys and greater than 22 units per liter in girls. And the reason for this push really is that um, when they have looked at pediatric um, liver biopsy specimens, even in those patients who are overweight or obese, even in those patients who have normal or only very mildly abnormal um, uh, ALT or AST, um, it, they've already found very significant histological changes, including advanced fibrosis. And then obviously other testing based on your clinical concerns. So for example, in a teenager who um, is complaining of hirsutism or acne and, and menstrual irregularities, getting a testosterone and free testosterone could be appropriate. So a word about A1C. So it's not, it's a good test, but it's not a perfect test, particularly in pediatric patients. So just to remind everybody, so we worry about diabetes if the A1C is greater than or equal to 6.5% on two separate occasions. If you have a fasting glucose that's greater than or equal to 126, or if you have a random at any time that's greater than or equal to 200 with symptoms. Pre-diabetes, um, the A1C range is about 5.7 to less than 6.5% if your fasting is greater than or equal to 100 but less than 126. But really, a lot of this is really just based on adult standards. This really hasn't been validated in pediatrics. And A1C performs pretty poorly in diagnosing prediabetes or diabetes in kids. Um, and it's sought to underestimate the prevalence. So if you have a high-risk youth, high-risk family history, really symptomatic and you're really concerned that you really should consider going to something like an oral glucose tolerance test because it's probably going to provide some really important data. All right, so next question. So, so testing for endocrine causes of obesity, so looking for growth hormone deficiency, hypothyroidism, Cushing's, should be considered in which patients? All pediatric patients with a BMI greater than or equal to the 85th percentile, all pediatric patients with a BMI greater than or equal to the 95th, patients with a BMI greater than or equal to the 95th percentile with short stature and or poor growth velocity, or patients with a BMI greater than or equal to the 85th percentile and a family history of thyroid dysfunction. stop and see what people thought here. Okay, excellent. So about 4% for the first one, greater than or equal to 85th percentile, 2% um, for BMI greater than or equal to 95th. Um, far and away, the winner was 89% for those who have BMI greater than or equal to the 95th percentile with short stature and or poor growth velocity and only about 4% for the lowest one. And in this case, the majority is correct. And I thought I would illustrate this with a case. So this is a real patient of mine that I met last summer. Um, this is a 10-year-old female whose BMI was greater than the 85th percentile for age. And I apologize for the quality of this, but um, this is a height curve. Um, and when we got the initial records, um, you could see that really her growth hadn't really done very much, but we were able to track down the paper growth records. And this is why as endocrine doctors were constantly bugging 
office staff of our wonderful general community pediatricians because we like to see these and they're really helpful. Um, and so just you can see the points I put in red are tracking back and looking at it. So she really had a significant deceleration in growth velocity over time. Very different than probably what most people experience in cases of exogenous obesity where often the growth velocity is very robust. And so her, her very um, astute pediatrician based on that, based on her BMI, based on her family history, got labs. And her TSH was over 800 and her free T4 was 0.1. So really profound acquired hypothyroidism. And if anyone was in doubt how important thyroid, uh, normal uh, thyroid hormone exposure is for growth, in just four months on levothyroxine treatment alone, you can see that she had a significant improvement in her statural growth and her BMI without any other um, type of intervention really went from above the 85th percentile. Oops, sorry. Let me get that back. Um, down to almost the 50th percentile. But again, that's gonna be um, not the majority of cases, but certainly important to look out for. So exogenous or syndromic. So we're gonna to go to the next question for this. All right, so you're seeing a three-year-old female for a well child check. Her BMI is greater than 120% of the 95th percentile. Parents are convinced there's a medical problem to explain her weight gain. It would be reasonable to pursue genetic evaluation or testing if she also had the following hyperphagia, a history of a CNS tumor, normal weight parents, or poor growth velocity. Okay, so let's see what people thought. Okay, oh, good mix. So about 39% voted for hyperphagia, 4% CNS tumor, almost 9% normal weight parents and 48% poor growth velocity. Right. And the correct answer here really is hyperphagia. Let's talk about why. So I am certainly not a geneticist um, nor claiming to be, but I think it's important to think about when might we consider that somebody might have a genetic obesity syndrome or a genetic mutation that could really explain um, what's going on with their, their excess adiposity. So right now, um, it's estimated approximately 7% of patients who have extreme early onset obesity defined as severe obesity in those under the age of five may have a rare chromosomal abnormality and or a highly penetrant genetic mutation. Um, and people um, postulate that this percentage is likely to change as we do more and more genetic testing and discover more and more variants. But what would really be some defining clues? And really it's, is there a history of neurodevelopmental abnormalities or severe hyperphagia? Um, because that definitely would be a red flag. And this is a little bit of a busy slide, but just to show you from the, the clinical practice guidelines that I've mentioned that were published last year, um, this is, a, I think, a, a nice way of sort of thinking about it, um, looking at is there developmental delay, yes or no. And if somebody does have developmental delay, then you're going down the pathway of thinking about things potentially like Prader-Willi syndrome, um, and um, Albright's hereditary osteodystrophies in here, um, BDNF, which is brain-derived neurotrophic factor and its receptor deficiency is in here, often presenting with really severe obesity and developmental delays. 
And then on the right side of the pathway, not so much the developmental delay, um, but you're really looking at leptin and melanocortin pathway deficiencies. And those typically present with really significant obesity, really significant hyperphagia, um, and often really a, a history of just impaired satiety. Um, it's really thought to be due to probably hypovolemic defects. And in fact, recently I saw a patient who, between myself and then actually a, a, a obesity researcher at another um, institution, I'm actually doing testing for a four-year-old patient who came to see me. And really that's what's driving it is that there, it's just hyperphagia that is out of context um, for most kids. I, in this particular little boy's case, um, I think he must have asked 20 times in the span of, of the exam for his parents for something to eat. So it just, it seems very out of proportion. And again, whether or not you're gonna pick up anything is, is, is a different story, but I certainly think at that point then that um, warrants a conversation to say maybe there, there may be something else here going on that we need to look for. But lest we think it's everyone, um, there's an article published in the Journal of Pediatrics last month looking at clinical, social, and genetic factors associated with obesity at 12 months of age. So this was called the First Thousand Years of Life and Beyond Study. It's a longitudinal cohort study of pregnant women and offspring. And in this particular manuscript, they used about 690 of the kids. As part of this study, in addition to getting you know, sociodemographic data and other, other measures, they also um, got permission to do a whole exome sequencing of all parents and children. And as part of this, what they were looking at in this particular paper was examining weight for length um, percentiles at 12 months of age and they make a comment that almost 40 percent of the kids in this group had a had a weight for length greater than or equal to the 85th percentile at that point and what they really found was that there was no when they were doing this whole exome sequencing what they were looking at is that were there genetic variants within or near genes that had been previously associated with obesity and what they really found at least in this paper was that there was no strong genetic associations with weight for length percentile at 12 months in the overall sample here. Now they do make the comment that in terms of genomic studies, this is a pretty small sample size. Um, and then they also do comment in the manuscript itself that when they looked at those infants who had the highest weight for length percentile, there was a trend to see some um, uh, more likelihood of finding some of these genetic variants. So again, I think it's there. I think this is an evolving field um, and it's certainly not everyone, but you know, I think we have to have sort of the clinical suspicion and then go from there. Okay, prevention, what works, what we don't know. So let's go to the final question. Okay, so what is the risk of adult obesity at age 35 for the current population of US kids? 35%, 68%, 45%, or 57%? stop and see what people thought. Okay, so about 2% for 35%. I like it, the optimists in the group. Um, six, 68% is about 68%, 19% of you voted for that. Um, thankfully, it's not quite that dire. 45%, um, about 40%, wow, no, it's pretty evenly matched. And the correct answer, at least based on this data, is 57%. <coughs> So let's go back to that. So 
So where did this 57% come from? So there was an article published in the New England Journal of Medicine in no November of just this past year of 2017. And what they did was given the current um, rates of childhood obesity, they did a simulation of growth trajectories from childhood into adulthood and found that the model predicted that for the majority of today's kids, unfortunately, um, unless something radically changes, that the majority or 57% are going to be obese at the age of 35. And that's really driven by rates of childhood obesity. And the unfortunate part is, is that when you looked at age, um, the older the child and adolescent, um, the situation becomes sort of even more critical. So that their model predicts that for a severely obese 19 year old, the chance that they won't be obese at the age of 35 is only about 6%. And I think that this really highlights kind of what a critical epidemic this is and why we really need to focus on prevention. Now is that to say that when you have a child, particularly an older child or adolescent with obesity that, that we're giving up hope? Of course not. And I think there's a lot to be said about um, if you can take somebody whose weight trajectory has really been off the charts and work with a family, particularly a really motivated one, to result in weight stabilization or to result in even um, a small amount of weight loss, I think there are going to absolutely be health benefits to that. And we're incredibly fortunate at our institution, which is not true at a lot of um, pediatric academic centers that we have, um, a robust um, and, and really dedicated um, staff um, and weight management program, which I think is really important. Um, but I would say that I think, you know, knowing that there are just so many more challenges sort of once that excess adiposity is already there, I think this is why we really need to push at all levels to say that we need to be looking at this sooner and we really need to be focusing on prevention and not just when kids get to school, but for toddlers, for the first um, months and weeks of life and probably even sooner than that during pregnancy itself. So let's talk a little bit about known factors associated with childhood BC, a lot of which people probably already know, um, but we'll just kind of go through things and highlight some factors. So certainly parental obesity um, is a big risk factor. So if both parents um, meet criteria for being obese, um, the chances of a child being obese is about 80%. Um, the other piece of it is gestational weight gain. So when people have looked at kind of, there are Institute of Medicine guidelines um, regarding the amount of weight that someone should gain during a normal pregnancy, and it's based on um, kind of starting maternal BMI, um, greater than recommended gestational weight gain is associated with future risk for overweight and obesity and offspring. And in fact, that Hasrati article that I mentioned looking at the whole exome sequencing, they found that um, uh, greater than recommended gestational weight gain was associated with greater weight for length percentile at 12 months of age. Um, rapid infant weight gain. So this is a this is a tough one, and there's there's various definitions about what that actually means. Um, a lot of um, studies will use a weight for age z-score greater than 0.67, um, but there's debate around that. I think regardless, though, it offers an opportunity to really look at growth charts um, to look at what some what an infant's weight is doing over time and to have sort of that conversation, looking at feeding patterns, looking at you know timing of, of kind of solid food introduction um, and what exactly people are feeding their kids. Um, I think I will never forget this and it's probably one of my husband's favorite stories to tell. 
who's also a pediatric specialist who um, was seeing a nine-month-old um, when we were residents in clinic and asked about sort of eating and, and favorite foods and things like that. And um, the response was that um, the baby loved uh, Arby's double bacon cheddar milk. I believe that's what it was. So, I mean, I think, you know, um, people feed their kids lots of different things and things that probably don't need to be maybe introduced ever, but certainly to a nine-month-old. Um, and then certainly sedentary activity is a big one. So there's very strong evidence to suggest that increasing sedentary activity is associated with increased risk for weight, um, for weight gain and for obesity in kids. Um, and the truth is, is that while not um, synonymous, they certainly go hand in hand. Screen time is a big part of that. Um, again, also very strong evidence to show that by decreasing screen time and increasing physical activity, um, that this could really be helpful in sort of preventing, um, you know, too rapid weight gain. And again, I think this presents a lot of opportunities for counseling and to talk about, you know, unstructured play and the importance of that for, you know, kids who are starting to be mobile. Oops. Um, you know, and more structured play for older kids. I even like the suggestion reading um, through some of the literature and somebody said, even just talking about reading with a child or playing a game is probably much more likely to lead to active play versus something media driven where they're just sitting there like lumps looking at an iPad or a, a television screen. Certainly, I think everyone here knows that calorie dense nutrient poor foods and sugar sweetened beverages are a huge problem. Um, estimates are that a lot of kids and adolescents, 30 to 40% of their daily intake is energy dense foods and sugar sweetened beverages. So really focusing on, on whole fruit intake, talking about beverage choices, talking about the need to incorporate vegetables and talking about the need to keep reintroducing, right? If they don't like the first time, you gotta keep doing it. Um, you know, the recommendation is no fruit juice in, in infants under the age of six months and then People say, well, maybe 100% fruit juice, four to six ounces after that. But I really think that we need to also change the conversation around that. When you look at the early childhood longitudinal study, it wasn't looking at excessive amounts of fruit juice. It was just saying daily ingestion of fruit juice at the age of at the age of two led to increased BMI at the age of four. So I think it's a real opportunity to talk about, does anyone really need this? Um, I'm fond of saying that you can eat your fruit. You just really shouldn't be drinking it. Um, and limiting added sugar. I put lack of breastfeeding here as well. Um, and there's some stars because of course there's always caveats. So the literature around breastfeeding and kind of a protective effect is a little bit mixed. There have been um, uh, at least one large meta-analysis that found a protective effect of breastfeeding on preventing um, excess weight gain in kids and infants. Um, and particularly with increased duration. Um, others have really seen some confounding, but the truth of the matter is when you're weighing pros and cons, there's so many pros to it that I think it is important to be supporting moms um, you know, um, with breastfeeding and talking about sort of the benefits of that. And then unfortunately, we still have so many questions. So I think there's a lot about early life programming during pregnancy that we don't know about. So how does stress, how does maternal nutrition, how does the family environment all play a role in kind of setting a child up for um, what their weight trajectory is gonna be? Um, there's a lot, I think, about infant feeding practices that we don't, that we still could explore. So looking at not only sort of what kinds of foods, how much, and also kind of feeding style, there's a whole literature around that as well. Um, sleep um, is also an important area. 
there is some conflicting data about how sleep actually impacts on BMI, but there's very clear data that disordered sleep patterns can absolutely impact appetite and they can decrease insulin sensitivity. So I think it's an area that deserves a lot of study. Um, and then gene environment interactions. So, you know, while we may right now not pick up a lot of sort of genetic variants or genetic um, syndromes associated with obesity, I absolutely think there are families at much higher risk. Um, and then is there a way we can identify those families, identify those kids, and then look at how sort of their built environment impacts on all of that. And then finally, I think really an optimal public health approach is really, is really lacking, right? A lot of things are done on an individual basis. And I think that that's where we really have to think about this as um, a multi-pronged approach, right? We need to involve schools, we need to involve um, we need to involve um, community health providers, child care centers, and then even impacting public policy. Um, you know, one, one study I was reading was saying kids, you know, often consume up to 30 to 40 percent of calories in school. Um, so I think, you know, a lot of schools have done a good job with trying to work on their, their nutrition, but I think there's still to go. Um, I live in Cheshire, and at the beginning of the year, um, my husband said, why are you all in a flurry? And I said, because, did you see this came home about this and it was pushing, oh, we, we serve whole grains, we serve whole grains, that's wonderful. But I almost lost my mind when it said whole grain Pop-Tarts. And I just, yeah. And I, think, and I think our town does an okay job. So I mean, you know, I just think there's so many opportunities there. Also with physical activity in schools as well, I think there's, there's so many activities to say that, you know, yes, academics, reading, writing, all of these things are important, but we also need to be looking at the health of the whole child. And I think, I think there's lots of opportunities to get kids active and moving a lot more in schools that we don't take advantage of. And again, I think public policy is really key. So wrapping up. So in summary, so obesity prevalence in children, including those with severe obesity, continues to increase. There is no diagnostic value in obtaining fasting insulin levels, but we should be screening potential for potential obesity comorbidities in ch children and adolescents with a BMI of greater than or equal to the 85th percentile for age and sex. If there's a history of severe early onset obesity, as well as presence of neurodevelopmental abnormalities and or hyperphagia, then we should at least be thinking about that genetics box. And then there's some preventative factors and strategies known, but lots of questions remain and really deserve further research. And I realized that this was printed and handed out and, and without the context of what I was trying to go for, it probably looks a little strange. You know, um, I was thinking in the car, it kind of looks like I could say that this is what happens when your mom is a pediatric endocrinologist and you ask for a piece of candy. And the answer is sure, but you gotta go out and do some hard labor first. Um, <laughs> Um, but really what I was trying to get at was when I was thinking about this, I think so much of that is done on an individual basis, and I think it can really feel like a Sisyphean task where, you know, you're, you're never, you never feel like you're making much progress, and it can get really frustrating. I know that I, I feel that frustration sometimes, too. Um, but that's where I really think that we need to focus less on kind of individual efforts and more on collective efforts to partner together, to be inventive about the things we're doing, to try to impact on children's health, particularly with this area. And I'm a really strong believer that I think that there's so much passion and dedication and talent, not only in this room, but kind of in the field of childhood obesity, that with, with those efforts and, and with that dedication, that this is something that we too can conquer. And I just want to say thank you so much to Dr. Jermaine Lee and the rest of my wonderful colleagues and staff in the Division of Endocrinology for all of their support, my family, and thanks for participating today.